0: We're going to continue in our series this week on this uh, series entitled Faith in Action. And what I'm hoping that we as a church get out of this is to remember and to understand that these stories we read about in the Bible, these, these encouragements that we get from Scripture, the songs that we sing and the truths that we declare uh, when we worship, the ways that we uh, speak truth to each other when we gather, when we pray for each other, that a lot of these Uh, ideas and truths and concepts for many of us they can stay in the realm of an idea and i think for a lot of us just imagine how many of you have been in the church a long time maybe you grew up in the church if you don't mind just kind of i i was going to to a church before i was born right some of you were born actually in this building i think uh you know you've been here and or in a church for a long time right and let me ask you this have you found that every single thing that you've learned about Christianity, faith, and life with Jesus, that everything that you have done in a Bible study, that you've heard in a sermon, that you do all of it? Do you think you do half of it? One-fourth? I'll stop there. We don't need to find out. But I, I think we can all resonate with the idea that I know, for a lot of us, I know way more than I do, right? Right? And in certain uh, traditions and in certain circles in the church, we get very wary. We're very concerned about the idea of maybe legalism or, uh, you know, making it all about our actions because we know that in the scripture that, that our faith is what saves us. God says uh, in, through Paul, the apostle, he says, by, it is by grace, it is by faith you have been saved through—I'm getting it backwards, right— is by grace you have been saved through faith, right? It's not of your works, so no one can boast. And, and we kind of are careful not to focus on our works too much. But we do need to remember that faith that is not into, put into action, according to the book of James, is no faith at all. And so it would be very easy for us to come to church and we think, well, I've got all the right ideas. I've got all the right theology. Uh, we'll set aside whether that's true for a moment because we all get things wrong, including, including me, even I do. But, uh, you know, I, I, I know all the stuff that I need to know. And yet, when we take a really good look in the mirror, maybe praying for the Lord to reveal to us even the things that we don't normally see about ourselves, we realize that actually we fall quite far short of what our expectations are for ourselves, much less a holy and righteous God. Now, by the grace of Jesus and, the, and the, the forgiveness that he earned for us on the cross, we can move forward in that. We don't get stuck in that place of recognizing our own failures, or our own weaknesses. We say, in these weaknesses, Christ, help me to step forward into a new day and to, to walk more and more in your righteousness and your character but if we don't ever put those things into action, then we have to question, what does that mean about even our faith? And so we're going to look at someone today who had the kind of faith that helped her to take powerful actions and that those actions resulted in miracles. Okay? Faith in action resulting in miracles. And by the way, last week we looked at Jonah who was very disobedient, very disobedient and was not responding to the call of God in his life he did not want to put his faith in action, uh, but God, God even worked miracles through him. So the key theme through this whole series is how God works when we put our faith in action. So that's a really long intro, so I'm sorry for that, but let's, we're going to look at the book of Ruth today. Does anyone in here just love the book of Ruth? I think it's one of my favorite books, and it's just such an incredible story. And before we dive into it, let me just give you a little bit of background. I put this stuff up here for the people who actually care about it, you know, uh, for maybe some history nerds or some Bible geeks or whatever you might be out there. But just the the theme of this book is that God reverses Naomi and Ruth, who we're going to meet in just a moment. They're what looks like a hopeless situation. And so he provides hope for them, but also for all of Israel. And we're going to learn for all of us, because God reverses does miracles when people have a little bit of faith and if we want to think about where this takes place so uh you, you know this is this is israel you have the mediterranean sea over here um, this is the capital of jerusalem bethlehem is where most of the story is going to take place you might recognize bethlehem because of david and of jesus you we're going to hear about them And then the beginning of the story starts out in the nation of Moab. Moab is the nation that was started when Lot, you guys remember Lot, his wife turned into a pillar of salt, and then his daughters decided to carry on the family through their father. Very difficult story. I'm already seeing some uncomfortable faces. But out of that comes the nation of Moab. Now, the Moabites were also the people that tried to stop Israel from entering into the promised land when God took them out of Egypt and they're also the people you may remember Balaam and his donkey they're the ones who hired Balaam to curse Israel and Balaam's donkey would not let Balaam curse Israel Uh, and he turned out to be the savior of Balaam and the savior of Israel because an angel spoke through the donkey so if you want to hear some uh, read some crazy stories after church today go read that story but that's kind of the historical backdrop to all this. And, um, you know, it's then the time of the judges, right? So if you know your Bible history, you've got uh, God calls Israel out of Egypt. That's called the Exodus. And then he takes them into the promised land. And in Joshua, they're taken into the promised land. And before they have a king, King Saul and then King David, they're ruled by judges. So this is that time of judges. And... It's probably written after David became king because David is mentioned in the book, all right? And then finally, we don't need to go through that. That's an outline. We're going to go through the whole book. I don't know if you can see all this, but just basically it says that David becomes king. uh, David becomes king in 1011 BC. This story takes place in 1150 BC. So, you know, we're talking about 140 years before David is king. So that just kind of gives you the background of where we're at. And um, let's just leave that there for now. All right, so if you have your Bibles, open up to the book of Ruth. We're going to do a super fast flyby of this story. I'm going to read the whole thing out loud, but I encourage you, get your Bible out. Uh, this, it's Joshua and then Judges. So you've got the first five books of the Old Testament. Um, and then you've got Joshua, Judges, Ruth. And so if you have one of these Bibles... Right here, it's on page 263. If you don't have a Bible, you can find one under a chair nearby. And, of course, always smartphone, tablet, whatever you like. All right. Well, let's read this together. In those days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi. Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. So an Ephrathite is just one of the clans in the tribe of Judah. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband. By the way, that is the funnest name, I think, in the whole Bible to say out loud. Elimelech. That's a freebie. So Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. So in that culture, the husband dies, the sons take care of the mother because women can't own property, they they have restrictions in commerce. So as long as she has sons, she can be provided for. So she's fine. She's got these two sons. And they were old enough to be married. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. Another freebie, Oprah Winfrey, was accidentally named after Orpah. Switch the letters and you've got Oprah. That one you need to carry with you because you're going to need that fun fact someday. <laughs> After they lived there for 10 years, both Malon and Kilion also died and Naomi was left without her two sons and without her husband. So now she's in trouble. She has no one to protect her. She has no one to provide for her. She has no legal rights in the world anymore because she has no father, no husband, and no sons. And also her daughter-in-laws no longer have anyone to protect them because they're not in their father's household anymore. They're in Naomi's household, and there's no one there to protect them or to provide for them or or whatever. So Naomi heard, when Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them because there was a famine in in Israel, she and her daughter-in-laws prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. When Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, "Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband." Now, again, just a reminder: when you see that word "Lord," that capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that is the personal name of the God of Israel. There, it's not just saying generically God or generically Master or generically Lord. She is saying, and, and typically we don't pronounce it, Jewish people don't pronounce it, but it's probably pronounced something like Yahweh. So she's saying, Yahweh, may Yahweh, may the God of Israel, the personal name of the God of Israel, bless you because of the kindness that you've shown me and my sons who are now dead by staying with me. But she says, now go on your way so you can find your husbands. And then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud. Obviously, they loved each other and said to her, we will go back with you to your people. Both of them did. But Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who who could become your husbands? So in ancient, ancient Middle Eastern culture, there's this thing called leveret marriage, and we see that story played out in a couple of different places in the Bible. But if a brother dies and leaves his wife without a son... Then the living brother is supposed to help her conceive a son in the name of his deceased brother. It's a little complex, but you get the picture? She's saying, I don't have any more sons. In fact, um, you know, am I going to have more sons? Are you going to wait for them to grow up so they can become your husbands? Now imagine the expectation placed on that little boy. One day you're going to grow up and marry this adult woman who is your hu- brother's wife so that you can have a son for him. That's kind of mind-blowing for us, but that's how they did it. Return home, my daughters. This is verse 12. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand is turned against me. At this, they wept aloud again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and to her gods. Go back with her. She says, your people and your gods. The place where you're safe. The place where you're familiar. The place where you have put your trust. All your life. Your people and your gods. Go back to them. But Ruth replied, do not urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God my God. She's literally forsaking her homeland and forsaking the gods that she has spent her life praying to to follow Ruth back to Israel and back to the Lord, Yahweh. This is huge. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord, and she uses the personal name of the God of Israel there, May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. Huge, powerful moment. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them, and the women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? She said, Don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant. She said, Call me Mara which means bitter, because the Almighty has made my life bitter. I went away full, a husband, two sons, two daughter-in-laws, right? And the Lord has brought me back empty. No husband, no sons, no one to care for her, no one to protect her, no legal protection. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned, from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Now you have to understand the Israelites don't like the Moabites. Right? They're the ones who tried to curse Israel. And also, God demanded that the Israelites put the Moabites into bondage, into servitude. And he said that no Moabite could have a place in the assembly of God. Now, if you remember this summer, we studied the book of Nehemiah and the rebuilding of the wall. And in two different places, they had to get rid of all the Moabite wives and children because Israel had sinned against God by bringing in these, not only foreigners, but foreigners who had tried to curse Israel. So it wasn't just that they were, we talked about this this summer, it's not just that they were foreigners or immigrants. It's that they worshipped other gods who were directly opposed to the God of Israel. And they brought that worship with them. So Naomi's going to have a hard time under normal circumstances because people don't know about the oath that she's taken to the Lord, to Yahweh. They just know where she's from and what she represents. So here's a little act of faith on Ruth's part. She says, Naomi, I'm going with you wherever you go. I'm going to stay with you wherever you stay. Wherever you die, I'm going to die. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Now, I think for most of us, we can relate to this in some way. Even if you grew up in a Christian home, there was a point in time where you had to come to a decision about your own faith in God and your own faith in Jesus. And so, you know, I don't know if everyone in here has made that decision, but many of you have. And so you decided That this God of the Bible, the God of Jesus Christ, is going to be my God. And his people are going to be my people. And that's really what this gathering is right here. It's about you making the people of God your people. Making the family of God your family. It doesn't mean you forsake your natural family if they're not believers in Jesus. But what you're saying is, I'm taking on this new identity in Jesus Christ and in the Lord. And that's basically what Ruth was doing with Naomi. So now we get into chapter 2, and here's where the story starts to get really interesting and exciting. So Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz, also a great name in the Bible. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Now in the Old Testament law, there's this thing called gleanings, and so the people who harvest the fields are not supposed to harvest to the edges so that anyone who's poor or anyone who doesn't have um, you know, the widows, the orphans, can't work for themselves in that culture, then they can come behind and they can glean the leftover har- uh, parts of the harvest. So this is the barley harvest. So they're going to come and they're going to pick the barley that's left over by the, 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 either the family or the employees of the landowner. And also, they were not supposed to go through the field a second time, meaning they're not supposed to go back and get all the spots they missed so that anyone who's poor can come through and get all of the barley that was missed in the harvest. And this is a way that God provides. It's his welfare system, if you will, that he provides for the poor, the needy, the oppressed, the downtrodden. So Ruth is saying uh, uh, to Naomi, let me go do that. Let me go get some gleanings so that we don't starve here. You know, they've come, in, they've come to Israel in time for the harvest. They have no money. They have no, they can't start planting anything now. They have no provision. They're completely at the mercy of others. So Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. I mean, behind them, right? So she, they're not going through a second time. She goes behind them and gets the gleanings. And as it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. "Harvesters, The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. And Boaz asked the overseers of his harvesters, what does that young, who does that young woman belong to? And the overseers replied, she is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. They're kind of pointing out her, her origin, right? She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained there from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field, and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting, and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. And wherever you are thirsty, go and drink from the water jars the men have filled. So Boaz is stepping in as a protector. Right? He's giving her covering. And at this she bowed down with her face to the ground and she asked him, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. How you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord, this is the God of Israel, the personal name of God, right? May the Lord repay you for what you've done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come over here, have some bread, and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to gleam, Boaz gave orders to the men. Let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Even pull out some of the stocks from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. Do you see how? I mean, this is huge. He's taking from his wealth and basically it's, it would be almost like, oops, I dropped some money. Oops, I dropped some more money. Oh, oh, go ahead, grab it. Yeah, no, that' my mistake. Go ahead and keep it. I mean, this is the kind of thing that's, that's happening here. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening and she threshed the barley she had gathered and it amounted to an ephah. So an ephah no one knows, none of, no one in here knows what an ephah is probably. It says about 30 pounds, 30 pounds of barley. That's a lot of barley first of all but that's a lot of barley for someone who has to just pick up the remnants behind the people who are actually harvesting. He, Boaz is absolutely going out of his way to make sure that she is well provided for. So she brought out uh, and gave her, I'm sorry, um, she carried it back to town and her mother-in-law saw how much she gathered. Ruth also brought out, brought out and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten, the roasted barley. And her mother-in-law asked her, where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed is the man who took notice of you. Can you imagine, like, you send your, you send your kid out to find a part-time job uh, and they work for, for 10 hours, and they come home with like $4,000. You're like, what, what's your hourly rate? Like, who, where, what kind of job did you get? And, you know, today we would be like, are you a messenger for the mafia? Like, what happened here? But she knows someone had favor on Ruth. So Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I work with today was Boaz. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing kindness to the living and the dead. Because remember, this is her husband's relative. That man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. redeemers. The traditional word is kinsman redeemer. Someone who's in your family, who's close enough to provide covering for you, to to give you provision, to give you food, to take care of you if you have no one to take care of you. Then Ruth the Moabite said, he even said to me, stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all my grain. So Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it it will be good for you, my daughter, to go with the women who work for him because in someone else's field you might be harmed. So Ruth stayed close to the the women of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvest were finished and she lived with her mother-in-law. So if the story ended here, we would say, wow, Ruth took a step of faith And God blessed her and gave her provision. (laughs) Right? She's never going to go hungry. She'll never be destitute. She's got someone in her life who's a family member who's willing to look out for her and for her mother-in-law, Naomi, and they're going to be okay. And the story could end there, and it would be amazing. But, of course, the story goes on. In chapter 3, one day Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you or you will be well provided for now boaz with whose women you've worked is a relative of ours tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor wash put on perfume and get dressed in your best clothes and go down to the threshing floor but don't let him know you're there until he has finished eating and drinking when he lies down note the place where he is lying then go and uncover his feet and lie down he will tell you what to do now this is a kind of a weird thing for us right and probably already you're wondering what is going on here what is she talking about? So, just be alert to a couple of things. Sometimes in the Old Testament, the word foot or feet is used with a sexual connotation. So, I don't know exactly what she's telling her to do and what we're going to see Ruth do. I don't know exactly what she's doing. But it has some kind of connotation, um, meaning that, that she's, she's making an overture, if you will. Okay? And there's some ambiguity in the text that we're about to read about what happens this night. But what is very clear is Naomi is telling her daughter Ruth, look, this guy's in our family. And you know how I told you that in this culture, a brother would marry his deceased brother's wife to have children? If there's no brothers, then the closest relative can do this. Okay? So the closest relative has the legal right, I mean, this is a legal thing, and it's very well structured and highly regulated, right to marry a deceased family member's wife, his widow, so that he can carry on his family member's lineage and name and even property rights. So you know that the people of Israel were granted land when they came in to take over the promised land. They were each granted a portion of the land. And it was carried down to the family. And so if all the brothers died, there was no one to inherit the land because women can't own property. So it would basically be left uh, undeveloped. It would be left unattended until someone in the family would buy back the land. So you've got these two different cultural elements that are at play here that's going to come out in the story. But Naomi's telling Ruth, look, you go snag yourself a husband. And the best option is Boaz." So you're going to go uncover his feet, whatever that means. It could be the feet, but everyone knows it's a euphemism for something else, or it could actually be something else. Uh, We don't really know. So Ruth in verse 5 says, I will do whatever you say. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her. And when Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, this is the the beautiful blessing of alcohol alcohol, when it's not abused, right? So that's the key point there. When it's not abused, it, it, make, it brings him into good spirits. And he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. And Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. What did she uncover? Let's just say it's his feet. But he knows what she's she know He knows what she's about. In the middle of the night, someone startled the man, and he turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you, he asked. I'm your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a guardian redeemer or a kinsman redeemer of our family. So remember, Boaz had said earlier that she was taking refuge under the wings of the Lord, the God of Israel. And literally, the language here is, she says, uh, spread your wings. Where it says corner of the garment, it's the wings. Spread the wings of your garment over me. She's saying, do for me what the Lord has done for me. Be my protector, be my provider. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know you're a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer or a kinsman redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your kinsman-redeemer, good. Let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized. And he said, no one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. He wants to keep her, he wants to keep her reputation intact. right? So no one would spread rumors about her. And he also said, bring me the shawl you're wearing and hold it out. And she did so. He poured into it six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. And then he went back to town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, how did it go, my daughter? And then she told her everything Boaz had done for her. Imagine you pull out, you know, these six measures of barley. <laughs> You're like, uh, any guesses how it went? This is basically Naomi, uh, Ruth saying, look at my ring. He, gave, he put a ring on the finger. That's what she's saying when, when she gets home to Naomi. She poured out um let's see where am i ah, in verse 17 he gave me these six measures of barley right she's like look at that saying don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed then naomi said wait my daughter until you find out what happens for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today all right and now the climax of the story chapter 4 Boaz went up to town, the town gate and sat down there just as the kinsman redeemer he mentioned came along. Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. And now we get a little glimpse into ancient Near Eastern bartering or, or um, um, this process of kind of like hashing things out. So Boaz took 10 of the elders of the town and said, sit here, and they did. And, and he said to the kinsman redeemer, Naomi, Boaz is kind of like, oh, look, this is a great deal for you. I really think you should take it. I, I kind of don't even want it. But you know, if you're not going to buy it, let me know because then maybe I'll reconsider. Like the whole time, he knows exactly what he wants, right? But this is his, his approach. And the man said, I will redeem it. And Boaz says, oh, by the way, on the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. So any children that this man has with Ruth will be Elimelech's grandson and granddaughter. You see that? It's a carry-on Elimelech's name. At this, the kinsman redeemer said, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I can't do it. Probably the guy had children. Probably he didn't want a mixing or a blending or a loss in his estate trying to figure out these inheritance issues. So he's like, oh, if that's the case then you go ahead and do it. And um, it says, in earlier times in Israel, for redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took his sandal off and gave it to another. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. So the kinsman redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself, and he removed his sandal. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Mylon's widow, as my wife in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today you are witnesses. Now most likely Boaz has never been married and he doesn't have children because he's not concerned at all about uh, endangering his estate. So he's willing now to marry a woman whose children in a sense will never be his own And probably now his property, when he dies, will be transferred to Elimelech's family because he will not have any sons of his own. He's having sons for Elimelech. This is a big deal. The elders of all the people at the gate said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, the women who were the mothers of the 12 tribes of Israel, who together built up the family of Israel, May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, who Tamar bore to Judah. By the way, that story, also a very interesting and colorful story that has a similar element. So if you had time today, check that one out as well. And here it ends. So Boaz took Ruth, she became his wife, and when he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, "Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age, for your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is and who is better to you than seven sons has given to birth has given him birth." Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. And he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. I mean, even the language, Naomi has had a son. Right? Ruth's the one who gave birth, but Naomi has had a son. Because this is the the one who will carry on her family's line. It says, This is the family of Perez. Perez, who was mentioned just before. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz. Boaz, the father of Obed. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David. So when this was written, David was probably king of Israel or maybe his son Solomon. David, the great king of Israel who expanded and protected the territory. The one who set the boundary markers of Israel, the one who protected Israel from their enemies on every side, the one who is a man after God's own heart, the one who they don't know yet but we know is the father of all the kings of Israel and then ultimately the father of Jesus, this Jesus who is the son of David but also the son of God who comes to bring salvation not only to Israel but to the whole world through his work on the cross, dying for your sins and mine so that we can have forgiveness, so that we can uh, receive the grace of God and so that we can have eternal life with Him and with His Father, the God of Israel, for all eternity. This is what happens when one woman has faith. This is what happens when one person who is, in, in every sense of the word, faithful, um, She's, she's not powerful. She's not influential. Right? She doesn't have standing in society. She comes into Israel where she's not only a foreigner, but she's a foreigner that the Israelites hate and that God said could never have a place in the community of Israel. But because of faith, we have Jesus Christ. Because of her faith, her trust, you and I have salvation in Jesus Christ. I mean, this is amazing. It's incredible. You know, and you think about, if we talk about calling and we talk about um, what it means uh, to, to respond to our calling in, in the Lord, which is what we've been talking about since this summer, uh, faithfulness and faith go hand in hand, right? If, you, if you're not faithful to God, meaning if you don't, if you don't actually trust Him with your actions... then it means that the faith you have really is drawn into question. And I don't mean this to say, "Oh, oh, you messed up, so you're going to hell. Okay? Like, that's not what we're talking about. But it's this idea, if repeatedly in your life you find that every opportunity you have to trust God in your actions, you decide not to trust Him, not to step out, not to take a chance, then the reality is you don't trust Him you know i'm a dad and i remember when my girls were little and we would go on vacation and we'd be at the pool and they would be standing on the side of the pool and they would say you know papa i want to jump catch me and i'd say great let's go do it and i'd get in the water and i'd be there and i'd say now jump now jump okay for real jump okay seriously you got to jump if you don't jump, I can't catch you, and no, you can't have fun. Jump! <laughs> you know, it didn't go that far, I don't think. I don't think. But it's like, if you don't jump, if you never jump, then you don't trust that you're going to be caught. But what would happen was, little by little, what we would do is, they would stand on the side, and I'd put my hands an inch from their armpits, and they would jump. And I'd bring them in water. And, oh, that's fun. And then we'd do it again in two inches. And they'd jump, and I'd catch them. And then a little bit more, and a little bit more. And then... You know, after a while, they're like, throw me in the pool, you know? And so we had so much fun because at that point, they trusted me. But how many times have I stood on the edge of the pool and I said, Papa, I'm going to jump. Catch me. And then God said, okay, jump. And I just stood there frozen. He said, no, jump. Stephen, there's this amazing thing waiting for you, but you have to jump. You're going to miss out if you don't jump. And how many times have we stood on the edge of that pool and we turned around and walked away because we really didn't trust that we could jump and be caught? Ruth was a person who knew how to jump. She understood that faith and faithfulness go hand in hand. But here's the other cool thing. Your faith and God's faithfulness also go hand in hand. I can remember many times when I didn't jump because I was afraid. I can't remember one time that I jumped and I wasn't caught. I can't remember one time that I jumped and I wasn't caught. When I have faith, God is able to show his faithfulness. And it's not that this is some deficiency in God. It's just logically you can't display your faithfulness if no one ever trusts you. So God's faithfulness is not put on display until you jump. And now Ruth knew how to jump. Because when we act in faith, that's when God makes the magic. That's when the miracles happen. You know, at so many points in this story, it could have gone a different way. Ruth could have said, You know what, mother in law, you're right. You're going back to your home country. I'm going to stay in my home country. I'm going to stay with my people. I'm going to stay with my gods. It's what I know, it's where I feel comfortable right? And that's a big decision. I mean, how many of you would just pack up your bags tonight and go to another country with no money, no connections, and maybe the one person you're going with has no money and no connections anymore and has no legal status? How many of us would do that? How bad would your life have to be for you to want to do that? But Naomi is not in a situation, Ruth is not in a situation where she's, you know, in physical danger. She can go back to her father's household. She can go back maybe to her brothers. Her life's not in danger. But she chooses to go. And then she goes and she's out there and she meets Boaz. And obviously, he treats her very well. But she takes this bold step essentially to propose marriage to him. Um, That's a scary thing to do. (laughs) But how much more scary is it in a culture where as a woman, you, you know, Ruth literally has nothing of tangible value because marriage back then was very much um, a financial and a practical arrangement. Not that there wasn't love involved. Obviously, these two, I think they loved each other quite a bit but there is this other element and she has nothing to bring to the table and yet she's the one proposing I think it's hard enough in this culture for women to propose marriage but in that culture it's even harder and yet she does it uh, it's just it's just amazing how much faith this woman who the only, she had faith in God is who she had faith in but the only connection she ever had to God was to this, her mother-in-law And some of us are steeped in our church experience, in our Bible reading, in our discipleship classes, in our Bible studies, in our prayer groups, and yet we struggle to muster the kind of faith that Ruth has. Now, here's the great and wonderful thing. You don't have to feel bad about not being as amazing as Ruth because she's amazing, right? She's a hero. She's one of the greats. Okay, if there's a hall of fame of the faithful, she's in it. So you don't have to feel bad about not being as, as faithful and, and filled with trust as Ruth is. Because God isn't in this uh, game where he kind of like has his, you know, stacks up your achievements here and stacks up Ruth's achievements there. And he says, well, you don't really measure up. God is in a totally different kind of game, if you can call it a game. God is in the game where he says to you, here's how much you trusted me yesterday. Can you trust me that much more today? Can you trust me that much more today? So I believe that what God does for us is he sticks his hands one inch from our armpits and he says, now can you jump? And the thing is, if you do jump in the easier moments, then you will have more confidence to jump in the harder moments. at the risk of being um, uh, just promoting it would actually be pretty easy for you to mark out September 28th on your calendar to come to a prayer meeting come and see what happens does God meet you there if he does it will be easier to come back to the next one that's easy um, it might be harder we, we've talked about the importance of generous giving this summer that might be harder it might be hard to give 10% of your income. But maybe instead of one, you give two. Right? How about this? It might feel hard to go to someone and share the gospel with them tomorrow. But maybe what's not going to be hard for you to do tomorrow is they say, How was your weekend? You simply say something like, Oh, it's great. Uh, we went to the park with the grandkids, and Sunday I went to church. That little seed, right? To spark potentially a conversation. Maybe that's easier. And then when you don't get hit over the head when you mention that you went to church, maybe the next week you could say, oh, we went to church again. And, and I was really encouraged because I felt like God was speaking to me about something. And then you get a little more courage to say something else. You see, little steps of faith, little steps of trust. Putting yourself out there a little bit and saying, is the Lord going to catch me in this? Is he going to be there for me when I need him to be? And see what happens. And over time... You can become a person of amazing faith. You know, last week, I know um, Kim's not here, but she told the story of how on Facebook, a friend who was, whose son was basically told he wasn't going to live through the night. On Facebook, she prayed and said, by the power of God, he is going to live through the night. He's going to come through this. And she told about how scared she was to post that online because then it's, it's there, like it's written And people can point to her, and if he had passed away, they could point to her and say, you know, maybe even angrily, how dare you give this woman hope when her son was dying? And that's not just something that you do on your own. She really felt like God was compelling her to do that. So you don't just just randomly do that because that is not okay. But when God puts it on your heart and gives you the courage and she did it and the son was okay, and now there's this public record Of a person who was praying in faith for something better than what everyone else was believing. And God did it. How much easier is it going to be for her and for other people who saw it to trust the Lord next time? How much easier? So, look, this story of Ruth is amazing. It's amazing. But who is the hero of the story? It's not Ruth, it's not Naomi. It's not Boaz, and it's not David. We know who the story, the hero of the story. The hero of the story is the Lord, the God of Israel. And the hero of the story who's not even yet in the story, but who is absolutely in the story, is Jesus Christ. He's the hero of the story. He's the one that made all of this be worth reading this morning. Because if there was no Jesus, none of this would be worth reading this morning. But because he lives, and because we live in him, and because the God who is trustworthy for Ruth is the same God who is trustworthy for us, now it's worth it. Church, my takeaway from today, and you may have your own, So we don't need to be powerful influencers. You know, I even hate these, I don't like these words coming out of my mouth because culturally they're just not okay, like we don't talk like this but historically speaking, you have to understand, Ruth was a nobody. She was a nobody. All we need to be is faithful. And I'm using that word with the hyphen intentionally, meaning faithful, we respond in faith to God, but also full of faith, full of trust. If we are faithful, then we will have a huge impact on the kingdom of God because God is the one who will make it happen. You don't have to worry that Oh, God's giving me this big calling. How can I ever do that? You don't have to worry about that. You just have to follow him and he'll make it happen. Oh, God wants me to, to share the gospel with my, my, with my brother. I can't do that. You don't have to do it. Just step out in faith and God will make it happen. I mean, you can't save anybody, but God can. Uh, just think of all the things that God's inviting you to do, inviting you to do, and that he will show up faithful. And every single one of them. So church, as I pray for you, I want you to think about this question. What is something that I've been afraid to act on faith about? What's one thing that I feel like God's been asking me to do it and I've just been too scared, I haven't had the courage, I haven't been willing or able or some other reason, I haven't done it. And as I'm praying for you, I'm inviting you to identify that Just one thing. And it's even better if it's something you can do today or tomorrow, like that's physically possible or, you know, actually possible for you to do today or tomorrow. And say, Lord, can you give me faith? Can you give me courage? Can you give me the trust to do this one thing? And then let's see how it goes. Can you do that? All right, let's pray. God, there's, there's, no, um, there's no reason for us to believe that we can do incredible things for your kingdom, except that you're the one who's inviting us to do them. God, there's no reason that Ruth should have believed that her life would be better in Israel than it was in Moab, except that you were the God who would be orchestrating everything. Lord, there are things that you ask us to do that are scary and they're hard some of them take a lot of work some of them feel risky some of them feel like like you're putting us on the line but god we know today we know that you're putting yourself on the line not us that you're going to be the one to carry the risk and that you will come through lord that our faith will activate your faithfulness in ways that we can't even fathom so God, help us today. Help us to, to have courage. Help us to have a trust. Lord, help us to be not like the little kids who are afraid to jump in their father's arms, but to be those little children who jump, are caught, and are having the time of their lives with their dad because of all the exciting things that happen when they step out in faith. God, we want to be like that. So Lord, for anyone here who's identified that thing that they have been holding back on, whether it's a conversation or an action or some type of generosity or some type of, of um, maybe something they're struggling to believe, I don't know what it is, but you know what it is. Lord, help us, each one of us, to step into that difficult thing today or tomorrow in a way that we've been unable to do previously. Lord, help us to get unstuck, And as we get unstuck in that area, Lord, let that lead to kind of like an avalanche of unstuckness. (laughs) That there would be an avalanche of faith, of courage, of trust, of belief, of obedience in our lives that just keeps building and building and building. And before we know it, miracles are happening left and right. Because we believe you can do that. We believe you can do it because you've done it already in Jesus Christ you've already done it if you've given us salvation if you've given us your Holy Spirit if you've given us freedom in Christ why would you not give us the thing that you're asking us to take but you will Lord so we we say in faith we trust you we believe you and help our unbelief Jesus' name, amen.